Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to Making It Plain with Dr. Key. I am so excited today because we have our guest, Dr. Marvin Childs. He is a professor at Old Dominion University. And Dr. Charles, you are a scholar in, of African-American history, and your research focuses on racial reconciliation in the modern South, and you really focus a lot on Richmond, Virginia. Yes. So I want to welcome you today because your, your background is going to be so um, insightful for the discussion that we're going to have. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Just last week, I believe it's been, it was just been a week. Last week, I had the opportunity of um, moderating a discussion. Well, it really only felt like a, a private discussion with me and her, but with Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project. And we really dug into many of the tenets of the project that maybe some of the listeners and viewers didn't know. And when I began to talk to people around me about the 1619 Project, what I realized is that many people don't even know what it is, even though it's so much um, in the media about it, it's being attacked so much. There are so many people within the Black community, because this podcast focuses on Black issues, Black families, Black communities, Black women. And so in the Black community, they didn't even know what the 1619 Project was. And it was so important for us to bring that to them. To, mm-hmm. to bring some insight of that project to them and some insight of the work and the knowledge that you have surrounding that project. So I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is just a lot of stuff in the news right. about the 1619 Project. And can you, for our listeners, we won't assume that they've read it. I read the whole thing in a day because I could not put it down. It was just so good and it just, it just dug into a lot of stuff that we're not taught. Right. Um, I, I you wish know. you were a student in my class. <laughs> yeah. It would, look, I would be all up for some discussions because I was really into it. And so can you share with our audience the significance of the 1619 Project? Like what was the real purpose behind it mm-hmm. um, and what type of things did it unveil? Okay, so yeah, uh, for the record, I teach the 1619 Project in uh, all of my African American history classes and even a little bit in my American history surveys. So it is very important. I'll start with that. Number two, the 1619 Project was a public history, uh, public history project done by uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, the New York Times, other New York Times writers and historians. And basically, they argued that the suppression of Black people is the driving force for American history. And uh, and they do this to try to dispel the myth that freedom, progress and justice for all is the uh, foundation for America. And so if you look at America through the lens of the suppression of black people, primarily through slavery and Jim Crow, uh, you get the modern U.S. economy, you get the modern healthcare system, you get the modern education system. And so she's really just refocusing our lens of viewing American history. Uh, and again, it's a public history project done with, uh, done by Nicole Hannah Jones, the New York Times writers, and in conjunction with a lot of credible historians, uh, some of which I incorporate their work into my own. 
And it, it was so exciting in talking with her. She said that, you know, I'm a journalist. So I rely on the historians and the scholars to write their research and stuff so that I can put it into my work and, and push that information out further. Yes. Um, and, and so she talked a lot about her use of historians. But one thing that I found that was so significant in her project is that I would say I would call it a mixed medium. She didn't just have um sort of history papers or, you know, history. She had poetry, you right. know, she brought in a mix of different type of writing styles in mm-hmm. this one project to be able to share this information in a multitude of ways. Right. Um, why do you think it was significant in how she actually shared this information? Well, mainly her message. Uh, the message is very simple, is that uh, white supremacy and black inferiority was Brought to, it was brought to America and it was the founding of America. And so the best way to share it is to convey it in a way in which this digestible for most people, because um, historians for a long time, that's been our view of American history, particularly those who study African-American history. And so we don't have the cultural connection that people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and journalists have. And so that's why she used multiple different streams and mediums, because if she just would have thrown out a bunch of history papers, which we do, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> people, would, people wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have received the message as, a, uh, as well, and they wouldn't have been able to digest it as well. And so that's mm-hmm. why she chooses that. And um, as far as the significance, I'm going to be honest, it reads like a case for reparations uh, yeah. in, t- in, terms of, uh, in terms of significance. I think that's going to be the long-term um, outlook on it is that many people who do bring up the question of reparations, whether you believe in them or not, or reparations or not, uh, the fact is, is that the 1619 Project is a great way of talking about reparations in an honest way. And you know I asked her that question, right? Because I had... I, I didn't. <laughs> I, had to fi- I had to find out what was her views on reparations. And she said, you know, um, she strongly is for reparations, that oh, there is <laughs> something given. Um, so yes, her project does present a case for reparations. Um, and she talks about how um, these, dis- how basically slavery cuts all branches of everything that this democracy does. Everything, yes. right? Yes. Um, and so it's, it's so interesting. But listen, one thing I want to get into, because she went there and she talked about this idea of a Negro race. Yes. You know, and can you explain this term and, it, and, it's, and it's not just the term, but how the term was used, the significance of that term, what that term actually meant, yes. uh, Negro, Negro race. Mm-hmm. Yes. So throughout American history, the term Negro or Negro race was essentially a classification tool on people of African descent. And that classification tool was used in law and in society to reduce Black people down to a subhuman group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being subhuman, we were not full-fledged human because we weren't white, um, but we were not uh, undomesticated animals. We were somewhere in between. And so in being a second class uh, for, or second secondary form of human being, it is okay to enslave us. It is okay to Jim Crow us. Uh, it is okay to deny us uh, the rights and privileges and freedoms that everyone else has. And so the term Negro is very, very important to understanding African-American history and American history broad, uh, in a broad sense, because that's what's being used uh, in terms of, again, in law with the original slave codes 
and in terms in society, uh, just the classification of a Negro. Because by saying it, you're immediately you're immediately saying that this person is less than. Um, she brings up in the 1619 Project the Dred Scott case. Uh, she doesn't bring up the slave codes, I don't believe, but she brings up the Dred Scott case and how that is the legal foundation uh, in many ways for Negro being a second tier form of human being. And by proxy, it is okay to enslave, it is okay to deny rights. And then um, it's not really until the 1960s with Stokely Carmichael and uh, uh, the SNCC organization that that he ran, and also the Black Panthers, that Black people begin to truly question that term and say, are we Negroes or are we something else? Uh, and that's when the term Black became popularized, uh, Black power, you know, uh, Black is beautiful, free Huey, right, uh, that, that song. And so Black people begin to say, uh, okay, well, we are not Negroes because Negro is a slave race. That's a term that defines a slave race, a group of people that don't, that they do not deserve rights and freedoms. We are black in that we are people of African descent who don't, we, don't, we really don't know where we come from in Africa, but we know we come from Africa. And so that term is an all encompassing term that unites us together under a singular identity. And so that's when black emerges uh, into the mainstream uh from, again, people in the 60s saying, we're no longer Negroes. Don't call us that because Negro is a slave is a slave term. It is a slave classification in terms of law and in terms of society. And then from Black, you get African-American, which comes along in the 1980s with Jesse Jackson. But that's a totally different issue. <laughs> right. Right. It, it is a totally different issue. But I think the the importance of understanding what Negro and Negro race meant, yes. how it defined. What it meant is that um, this population of individuals were just above animalistic, right? right? And right. so the treatment of them was okay. And this is how they justified that treatment. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They justified all their actions based on this Negro race. And, and I asked her, okay, so what is the remnants of that today? Mm-hmm. Right. right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please, please go ahead and expand oh, on the remnants oh. of, of that that is today. Well, well, for one, it it's it is staying black people with again that second class status or that inherent second class status. Um, and and this was something I'm, I'm going to be honest. I mean, carrying on today uh, to today, we still act as if black people are Negroes. Um, and this is black people, white people. We still act as if there is something inherently wrong with being black. Uh, I remember growing up. Uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in the Richmond area and I encountered a lot of white people, went to school with white people and they would always say, you speak so well. Or they would say that to my, to my mother, you speak so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would also have black family members and black friends who would, who would make fun of me for the way I spoke. And so what both of them were doing uh, simultaneously was that they were saying that there's something wrong with being black. Uh, because if you're black, you're not supposed to do this thing that everyone expects everyone else to do. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, that's just on a, that's on a small scale. I mean, if you want to branch it out into law, you can talk about policing of black people. Uh, the, the stain of Negro, for instance, uh, it criminalizes Black people in a way. It, it forces people to see Black men as menaces. It forces people to see Black women as, uh, as as sexually promiscuous. And then we begin to, as Black people, we will act out those roles sometimes, or we will throw or project those roles onto others. Uh, and white people in turn will do the same things. And so we are, you know, the, the classification of Negro, that Negro race term has, has troubled us from slavery until today, uh, right. both, again, on the Black side and the white side. Right. Right. And it is, it's deep when you start to think about, you know, who we are as a people, where we've come from and what has shaped us and what is still impacting us today. You right. know, 
um, our identity development, you know, who, how we identify um, and our comfort in identifying as either Black or African-American or, you know, rejecting being American because of the treatment of us as Americans. And, you know, right. it's just a long lasting uh, impact. And I think that's one of the things that she argued in this piece is that mm-hmm. many of the decisions that were made during the time of slavery has had this long lasting impact on Black people as a whole, but it also had an impact on American democracy as a whole. And it has, everything has been built off the backs of, you know, dehumanizing Black people, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, So she did something very specific in her work. She mm-hmm. talked about Abraham Lincoln and people really kind of, you know, that was kind of controversial. Um, right. The great emancipator, right? <laughs> it was supposed to be like this person that people looked up to. I mean, that's what we ta- well, that's what we were taught. Right. And one thing in it, she she proposed, she talked about how Abraham Lincoln um, wanted to send black people back somewhere. Absolutely. Give them an opportunity to send them back mm-hmm. wherever can you talk a little bit about how that is actualized um in our history and yes. why why he thought that way in the things and, and you know it kind of contradicts what he wrote as well right right so we tend to think of abraham lincoln today as the great emancipator um he's even taught in schools as the great emancipator and as a person that's been from undergrad to phd i can tell you that 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 perception is still there. Um, It is very much still there. Historians uh, obviously take a more nuanced view. And so Abraham Lincoln was like many white people during his time in that they believed that Black people were the source of America's problems. Uh, So, uh, and I think in the 1619 Project, the Colina Jones says that uh, Lincoln referred to them as the obstacle or he, um, or he, Directs, indirectly refers to them as the obstacle to national unity, quote unquote. And, and that was the way that many white people felt. And so many white people felt that black people took jobs from white people uh, if they were free. If they were enslaved, they allowed a few or a select class of white people to become very rich at the behest of the majority of whites. Um, and they allowed them to buy up all the land. They allowed uh, wealthy whites to uh, earn political or take political power and uh, and become corrupt human beings. And so a lot of people, a lot of white people believe that black people were the moral, economic and political problems that existed in America at the time, so much so that we're fighting a war over them, right, called the Civil War. And so Abraham Lincoln fell into that mold, the average the average white mold. Um, and I won't get into the historiog- historiography of it, but that's essentially where Lincoln falls. Uh, and so he was a proponent of colonization uh, in terms of sending Black people away from America. And so the basic idea of that was to, uh, it was an anti-slavery movement. So it's kind of weird. It's anti-slavery, but it's not progressive anti-slavery. It's anti-slavery in a sense that Black people should be freed and gotten and done away with. Uh, Many people believed in sending them back to Africa. Uh, Some believed in sending them to South America, sending them to the Caribbean. Others just said, send them out West. Uh, I mean, but just send Black people somewhere. And it was because mainly that if you freed black people and sent them elsewhere, the abundance of wealth that America was that America was generating and creating could now be could now be owned and shared by the majority of whites. And so, this was not a very progressive idea 
but it was a common idea. And Abraham Lincoln fell into that uh, for most of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones really dug into that. She even talked about when he wrote um, the Emancipation Proclamation, or when he started to write these these words, he had a slave right there with him. Yes. Oh, God. It was the same thing with uh, with Thomas Jefferson. Um, God, it was a book. Uh, it's it's a book on Blacks, uh, Death or Liberty by Douglas Edgerton, one of my favorite books. And it talked about the African-American role in the American Revolution. And he has a chapter called Richard's Cup. And so uh, there's a slave named Richard who held the cup for Thomas Jefferson while he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Wow. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, it's weird how history repeats itself. And yeah. so as a man is writing uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which again, freed not one slave, uh, you had a slave there. Yeah, and same thing with the Declaration of Independence. It says all men are created equal, uh, but a slave is standing right there as that that emblematic document is being drafted or a hypocritical document as Nicole Hannah Jones in the 1619 project suggests uh but it's being drafted right there as slavery is actively taking place uh and so yeah wow but and what she said actually is that when they said all men are created equal when they were talking about all men they were talking about all white people absolutely because the negro race and their view existed, we right. were not a part of the all men being created equal. We Absolutely. we were we were just we were down there with the animals, so we were not included in these actual processes or thoughts to write these words down. Mm-hmm. Even though we believe, you know, we might go back to that and quote that, but that's actually not true. So yes, in that context, yes, there would be a slave there because that person is not considered man. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, that, that's 100 percent correct. And because uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, one of the one of the uh, many black abolitionists, but he's the most famous mm-hmm. for, uh, for many reasons. But uh, Frederick Douglass would often make reference to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but it's odd because, like you said, uh, and Nicole Hannah-Jones makes very, very clear in the 1619 Project that those words weren't meant for you. Uh, those words were meant for white people or those who were a non-Negro race, essentially. So, yeah, you're 100 percent correct. Wow. So let's talk about slavery. Um, let's, let's let's talk about slavery. <laughs> okay, so yes. Nicole Hannah-Jones says, you know, that slavery touched every industry mm-hmm. and no hands, no hands are clean of slavery. What are your views on this statement? Uh, it is highly controversial for her to have said that, uh, but I would I would have to I would have to agree with her. And the reason why is because American capitalism, the modern industrial American capitalism that we are still engaging in today, begins with the institution of slavery. I mean, it simply does. Uh, the the um, the our modern financial system, our modern a system which is based on lending and credit. That comes out of the expansion of slavery into the Deep South uh, with northern bankers buying up southern land and uh, southern state governments chartering banks to give out loans to white people to buy the land and buy the slaves to cultivate the land. I mean, and, and that's that's the modern economy uh, in a nutshell. And everything grows off of that. And what Nicole Hannah-Jones says is absolutely correct. I mean, the nation's wealth, uh, that being the complete and utter extraction and processing of raw materials for monetary gain, uh, that begins with slavery in America on a grand scale. That begins with slavery. Uh, there is no other system of labor that could have produced that much wealth. And so when we talk about how wealthy and powerful America got over time, 
to not talk about the slave labor that it took to create that wealth that I think is I think it's uh it's historical malpractice in many ways. And so she is 100% right. Uh even if you can find one off, one off instance or a couple of off instances of oh this person built uh built their industry on their own without slave labor, chances are they purchased products like sugar, like cotton, like tobacco, uh, or something else, or indigo or rice. They purchased something that was being harvested by slaves, uh, or it was being, and so, because that was kind of the weird part with the Civil War, was that you had many people in the North that said, oh, look at those evil Southerners, they're they're slave owners, and the Southern slave owners would say, yeah, we're, you know, you guys are are spinning, and uh, spinning, uh, or not spinning, excuse me, make uh, operating machinery that turns cotton into clothing, but where do you think that cotton comes from? It comes from us, and and that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones is trying to make people very aware of, is that even things like Wall Street, which she makes reference to, uh, I mean, even things like modern financing and banking and credit and lending on a grand scale that that takes off in america during uh the 1800s and what are they financing the slave trade uh or or the the slave expansion excuse me the the expansion of slavery into the deep south all the way west towards texas and and that's where our modern capitalist system begins that's where the businesses that grow off of that finance system begins and that's where our wealth comes from simple as that it was so interesting she said that you know, I had to ask her because she made a reference to universities. Oh. And and I had to ask her about universities. She says her her response was, No hands are clean. Right. And she started to name like Old Dominion, you know, William and Mary. And she talked about Yeah, I know. <laughs> and she but she she said it. And I was like, Okay. And she said that slaves were mortgages. Yes. You know, got mortgages off slaves to actually purchase the land and stuff that they started to do yeah. these this building and stuff on. And yes. that was really it. So, so right in that alone, it crosses higher educational institution. It crosses oh, yeah. finance institutions, you know, the land, all of that stuff. So. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, and, and so actually to, to add to that, cause that is very, very true. Um, it is with the expansion of slavery that you get uh, black people being turned from labor to actual uh, or labor and, and commodities to actual currency. Um, black people were actual money at a certain point of our history for a very, I mean, for, for a good period of our history, black people were money. You could use black people to buy things Yeah, like that is crazy. But at the same time, that's, you know, that system was, uh, was, was also translated or, or transposed onto real estate. You could take, let's say the equity earned in a home and you could buy another home or equity earn on land and buy another. Like, again, that comes from the institution of slavery in America, being able to turn a frozen asset into liquid asset. Where does that come from in America? It comes from slavery. <laughs> so when she says that no hands are clean, she's 100% correct. Universities in America, and um, and as uh, you, I think you, um, you set up the talk in which I dealt with this issue, was that many universities would employ slave labor to build buildings. Uh, many universities would allow planter sons to bring their slaves on campus. Many professors were also compensated with slave labor if the schools could not afford to pay them with money. I mean, the institution of slavery, it, it is it is like the blood that is that is like blood on a on a on a white comforter, right? It it soaks everything and it just it yeah. She's again, she's right. She's one hundred percent right. Wow. And I think many people don't they don't know that. They don't know Oh no. That. Oh no. Um, so another thing that she mentioned was the great Nadir. Mm -hmm. And she she referenced it. The other term she used for the great Nadir was, um, second slavery. So can you tell the audience what 
what is the uh, significance of this era in time and its impact on the U.S. and, mm-hmm. you know, as we experience it today? Yeah. So the Great Nadir uh, is a term that was uh, coined by his Black historian Rayford Logan. And essentially, it, uh, it describes the lowest point uh, in Black life in America. And so she calls it a second slavery. I, as a historian, again, not a, not a, well, uh, not, not a, not a well-respected historian, not yet. Not yet. Still got some ways to go. But I will say, I believe that Jim Crow was probably, or the great Nadir slash Jim Crow uh, was honestly the lowest point in American history, a lowest point in black America's history. And it was worse than slavery. Yeah. Uh, you had a group of people who had been freed for two generations, almost, uh, almost two generations of people who had experienced at least a modicum of freedom. And then you throw them back into the political and economic chains of enslavement. It's to me, that's worse. That's worse than bringing people to this country as slaves. At least that's that's an easier process to accept. Um, But when you actually have gained freedom and then you go back to a system of slavery, that's a lot harder to accept. And so, uh, yeah, that is the darkest point. And so, I mean, there are things that you could talk about, like lynchings, uh, segregation, which is obviously the one that takes up most of the literature. Uh, discrimination at the polls. Uh, it's yeah, it is it is the lowest point in Black American life, and there are a lot in a lot of ways we have not recovered as a nation and as a people. We have not recovered from Jim Crow. Um, in fact, the opposite. We we've, we've gotten worse. Uh, we've gotten worse as a people since Jim Crow has ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, it has laid dormant for so much time. That that mm-hmm. whole um, views of Jim Crow. Um, the things that they were doing during the time of Jim Crow. And right now we are seeing some excitement um, or or some of those views and stuff sort of surfacing and bubbling back up in in the world today and and the things that we see. Oh, I mean, well, well, let's just be clear. So one thing about Jim Crow that uh, that became popularized was the Black menace. And I think I may have said it before, but this idea that, you have to segregate black people because of, of black people are inherently violent. They're inherently violent. They're inherently law-breaking people, particularly the men, right? And mm-hmm. so that perception of the black menace that was something that was actively portrayed on film. It was actively portrayed in, in the uh, in newspapers. I mean, they, they would just only print about or only print stories about black crimes or alleged black crimes back then. Uh, and so that perception of the black menace. That's something that we still deal with today. I mean, I turn on the local news and the only crime that's ever apparently happening is when a black person's doing it. Uh, and that was the case when I when I was down in uh, school at the University of Georgia. Uh, every single morning, it was some black man doing something in Atlanta. And I'm like, we can't be the only people committing crime in, in the metro Atlanta area. But but. But again, the black menace, and uh, that's that's something that could be commodified for for news stations because it sells. People want to believe that black people are menacing, and that comes directly out of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Also, redlining. Um, I mean, again, and black, it, a lot of black people have been know or may have know may know about the redlining issue. But basically, during the Jim Crow era, black families, regardless of income, in many places, could not get uh, mortgages for homes. Uh, and even when the when the F, uh, the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, uh, issued out or insured a lot of bank loans to allow 
even the poorest of poor white people to at least own a home and begin to build wealth, black people were denied that uh, access to do that. Uh, and many black neighborhoods were destroyed uh, because of that, because many black families could not get the loans to buy their homes that, that they lived in or to even renovate the homes and increase the property value. And uh, so again, I'm not going to go too much into that, but redlining still an issue because whenever, whenever too many black families move into a neighborhood, what happens? The neighborhood transitions. I mean, that's something that goes on in our lifetime. Uh, it's to the point now that, and I've spoken to several people um, about this issue, is that when they moved, I actually, I can, one anecdote. So I uh, over the summer, I spoke with a, a young white woman. Um, this was someone that I was meeting for uh, something dealing with history. And so right. she was new to the area, uh, my, my hometown of Richmond. And so uh, she wanted to live in the city. And Richmond is is becoming a wider city because of gentrification. Something's happening all over the place. But essentially, she wanted to live in a part of the city that was majority Black. And so when she wanted to live in that area, the realtor told her, oh, you can't. You can't do that. Why, why would you want to live over there? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's a good place for you and your husband to live. And when she said, oh, uh, why not? He was like, oh, the schools are horrible. Uh, and she said, well, I don't have children. And then immediately he's like, okay, well... I guess that's okay, but you should probably think about moving somewhere else. And again, it's because black people live there and it's that redlining mindset. Even if it, even if it's not happening from a governmental level, it's still a mindset that was created during Jim Crow that you don't want black people living near you. Uh, again, because they're menaces, because they're, because they're, because they're just, they're inhumane. They're second class people. And also with school segregation and low expectations for black youth, the criminal justice system over policing. I mean, again, all of this stuff comes out of Jim Crow. And we're living it out still to this day. We're, we're in Jim Crow part two, if you ask me. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I was just, I was just about to ask you um, about, you know, all the attention right now that the 1619 Project is getting. You right. know, our, the president right now, I will say the current president right now, because <laughs> um, I don't call my president. He's not. Um, but the current president that's in charge right now. Yes. He has specifically said that if schools teach the 1619 Project, that they will lose funding. Right. I mean, he has, and I'm sure he hasn't even read the project, but he is specifically attacking the project. Yes. Why is it that they do not want this information out, in your opinion? Uh, okay, so I'm going to be honest with you. I think that, I think, I think that um, the president and those who support him, uh, uh, I don't know if saying his name would anger you, so I will not. But but uh, <laughs> uh, the, the president, the president. Uh, so I think the president and people who support him are afraid to teach this uh, in school. And so they're afraid because in the rhetoric is this. If you teach this, people will hate America. Uh, you will teach young people to hate their country. And the one thing that I always questioned, or I questioned when I heard that is, you know, I teach the 1619 Project here at the university, uh, at Old Dominion. And I did when I was at the University of Georgia as a graduate student. And I don't hate America. Um, quite the opposite. I actually love America. Um, so much so that I want Americans to know more about their history. If I hated America, I would lie to it. I would tell it, I would, you know, you, you, you don't want to reform and change and make better something that you hate. Um, America's done a lot of wrong things to Black people, but at the same time, it's our home. And America's done a lot of right for Black people. And so, again... As, a, as an American and as a professor, I teach it. I don't hate this country. And I don't, and, but people like him and people who support him aren't even willing to reach over the, reach 
reach to, uh, across the aisle and say, why are you teaching this? What about this project appeals to you? Um, they, they just don't even want to teach it. And again, because they believe that they're going to teach young people to hate America and to want to tear it down, uh, you know, root and branch. And so I, I, I make his, um, his proposal to get rid of it similar to a gas leak in a house. So if your house burns down, uh, Dr. Key, and it was a gas leak, and this gas leak had been going on for a very long time, Am I going to sit there and tell you that a candle just tipped over and it burned it down? So it's an accident, you know, right? Like these modern instances of, of racism, modern instances of discrimination, these are just accidents. These are just one-off things. It is it's something that that could no one could have prevented. Or am I going to be honest and say, man, we have a gas leak. Um, that's why your house burned down. And if you don't fix it, your next house is going to burn down if you rebuild this one. And so that's what the 1619 Project is saying, uh, is that America has systemic issues that, uh, and racism being it's one of its big, or being arguably its biggest, and it is built deep into the country and it needs to be fixed. It is a reformist project. It is not a revolutionary project. And anyone who sees it as revolutionary, I think is misreading it. Um, and so again, I could be wrong. Nicole Hand-Jones could tell me I'm crazy, but I, it is a reformist project. And so I think that when people on his side of the aisle read it, they see revolution. When people on a sensible side of the aisle read it, they see reform. And so that's why they're afraid, because they're just not even willing to at least reach out and see, is this something that's reformist or is this something that's revolutionary? But also. But also. White guilt. White guilt. Uh huh. And, and, and I'm thinking that, you know, this project sort of lends to white guilt. And if we don't teach this project, then we don't have to deal with the guilt we have over the issues and the things that we've done in this society. Right. Explain to our children that white people did this stuff. We don't have to have these conversations. And so, you know, what are your views on that? Do you think white guilt goes into, you know, some of the thought process on why this has to be hush hush and we can't teach it? I I think white guilt is what is is an uh, outgrowth of it. So, yes, I do think that people are afraid of white guilt. What more so they're afraid of what white guilt will with the fruit that it bears. Right. So the fruit that white guilt bears, would it would it uh, create actual systemic change to make or to try to equify the the relationship between blacks and whites? If so, then that scares people. (laughs) Uh, Or are they afraid of protests? Uh, Are they I mean, just I think it's more the result of what white guilt comes from, because white guilt in and of itself is not a problem. Uh, White people have been guilty since literally since slavery came here. Um, But it's it's what guilty white people will do. I think that's what people are afraid of. And they're in in my honest opinion. I think that people are afraid that guilty white people will finally get it right. Uh, and, and that, that scares the hell out of people, excuse my French. And so I I think that's the, that's, that's where the white guilt argument comes in. It's like, we're afraid of white guilt. No, you're afraid if guilty, you're afraid of guilty white people doing the right thing. Um, and we're not talking about just token scholarship programs. We're talking about totally revamping the way that public education operates, um, making sure that, that racial balance, and class balance operates in public schools, making sure that hiring practices are completely uh, are completely clean of any form of racial or sex uh, discrimination. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of having to actually deal with the issue, deal with the issue of equity, because guilty white people, if steered directly, can actually infl- uh, create real change. That's the fear. Right. And that's that's the fear. Um, you get a lot of pushback when you're doing this type of work from people not wanting that to change. And right. it's so interesting that when we begin to talk about slavery and the issues of Black people, 
people mm-hmm. automatically say that is a political conversation. When you're not talking politics, you're talking about treating people the way they should be treated. It's, it's, it's being humane, right? Right. Um, but there's so much dialogue. I read an article that talked about, it was in the Virginia newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I realized where we stay. And maybe our audience don't understand the, the, the historical value of Virginia. Um, yeah. So maybe you can share some light on where we are before I say my comment on what I, I read. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will say this. Virginia is a place that uh, my, my fifth, sixth grade history teacher said this. He said, you cannot throw a rock in any direction and not hit a historical site in Virginia. Um, I mean, we, we're surrounded by Amer- American history is, is Virginia history. We are surrounded by the, by America's history in terms of military history, economic history gender history, and especially racial history. Um, we are we confronted every single day when we walk outside of our houses, uh, when our kids go to school, when we go to church, when we drive down our, our roads, you know, the ones that were built to knock out some Black neighborhoods in order to put, you know, like, like again, America's history is Virginia's history. So I guess I hope that- uh, No, so that was it. And that's, that first slave ship came to Virginia. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Uh, right it, down the road. <laughs> the, 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 fir, the, the, fir, the first slave codes, the first slave codes that uh, that codified the word Negro race, Virginia slave codes, 1660. Uh, it, it started here. Um, and also the strengthening of Jim Crow uh, with racial integrity laws and actually the first um, the first segregation ordinance, uh, citywide segregation ordinance happens here in Virginia. Uh, and so the, again, Virginia's, Virginia is in many ways representative of America's issues with race in, in many ways. You know, the president was just here, right? Was he? Seriously? Yes, he was here. He was in Newport News. Doing what? Oh, a campaign? Okay, oh, not doing a rally in Newport News. Well, it could have. Yeah. Well, I don't know what he was doing, but he was there. <laughs> Okay. There and it didn't look like us. I just think it was the the location was based off a location he can get a lot of people. Right, right. I'll just say because when you said Newport News and the president, I was like, uh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> no, it, I think it was a bigger location for him to get what he wanted to get. Right, done. right, right. Yeah, because Virginia Beach sounds like a place he want to go to. <laughs> right, right. So you know, I was in, an, I was reading a newspaper, and a newspaper yes. talked about you know teaching. It didn't talk about sixteen nineteen project. Mm-hmm. It talked about teaching African-American history, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Just teaching the history mm-hmm. and the comments under it was just ridiculous. And I said, if you want to know where you are from, take a look at the comments under this article and you understand exactly where you are and exactly where the people who live here Why should our children only be learning one-sided history? Why should any of the children be learning one-sided history? You know, it's it's not a difficult thing. We all exist here. How can you cut out one part and leave the other part and then highlight it to fluff it up to make it look good? it, it's the it's honestly to answer that question. It's the reason why Nicole Hannah Jones did the sixteen nineteen project. Exactly. The, the the minute you start talking about Black history, you can't ignore discrimination, and it is something that uh, I have tried to go away from. But it's it's you, you can't. Is that when you teach Black history, even if you teach say Black sports history or Black uh, economic history, it, 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 at every single turn you have to discuss 
racism. You have to discuss discrimination. You cannot talk about the Black experience without it. And so with that being the case, many people, when they hear Black history, they hear, oh, Lord, we got to hear about racism again. It's like they immediately get angry uh, because they have been taught and conditioned their entire lives that America was bigger than its discrimination. And I would argue, no, America was not. Um, If you want to know about real America, always check, check on the status of Black people. If you want to know about how well, say, public education is doing, look at where Black kids are scoring on, 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 the, uh, on the SAT and the SOLs. If you want to know about our economic situation as a country, don't look at how well our Fortune 500 companies are doing. Check on Black unemployment. Check on the Black wage gap. Like To me, Black people are the barometer to understand America, American history. And people know that. That's why they don't want it taught. Because then you, ha- you have to confront blatant discrimination, blatant inequities that are built into the system. And so, again, what, when people argue against teaching Black history to kids, that's, that's literally the same thing that's going on with Nicole Hannah-Jones' project uh, and why people don't want to talk about it, because you have to confront demons and nobody wants to do that. Well, listen, we got a question from the audience when I was interviewing her. Yes. And, and the person basically said, Black people have done so much. Can't we teach African-American history without talking about slavery? They've done so much that we can just talk about those things. Uh, What was her her response? Yeah, Her her face was her response. Her face was like, and she said, no! (laughs) (laughs) No. I would would agree with her. (laughs) That is our history. That is the truth of our history. So we can talk about all the good things that we've done, all the things that we've invented as Black people, but we also have to recognize the history, which is where we came and how we got here and how all these different things happen here. She said, yes, we have great music and all these cultural arts and all these different things, but we still came here as slaves on a ship. And you have to recognize that if you're going to talk about African-American history. So but I couldn't believe that the person even asked the question. I couldn't I, believe it. I, I, honestly, th- that is an odd one. That is an that is an odd one. I, I will say I can understand the spirit of the question. So the spirit of the question is, you know, can we talk about black people outside of the outside of the uh, the condition of slavery, outside of discrimination, outside of racism? I guess that's what the spirit of it was. Um, and but the reality in in her answer is that why how how can you do that? So when I was at, when I was uh, getting my master's degree, uh, I had to take an oral exam uh, for my to defend my thesis, and so the first question I I got had nothing to do with the thesis. It was it was a theoretical and ideological question. The question was, what is the driving force behind it? And again, this is the room with three white guys, right? Three white men, excuse me. Uh, and, and one of them looked at me in the eyes and he said, "What is the driving force of America history of American history?" Mm. And I was taken aback. I'm like, uh, that wasn't what I wrote about, but all right, cool. I guess I'm going to answer it. And so I forgot the answer I gave, but it wasn't race. It was not race. And so he said, "Well, what about race?" And I said, I mean, it has something to do with it. And he says, well, to what degree? And so, again, I don't remember the answer. And he said, well, can you talk about America's history without talking about race? Mm. And at that point, I stopped and I said, no, I don't think you can. He said, 
okay, I just wanted to make sure I got, he said, I just want to make sure that we had a solid foundation before we continue. And again, this was, this was, this was, this was a, what, a 50 year old white man, uh, who, who, and, and that completely changed the way that I did research and the way that I wrote, um, and even the way that I teach, because I, from that moment forward, I said, he's right. Uh, at no point in America, and, and it's, it goes the same thing with black people and slavery. Um, and again, I don't like pathologies of slavery. I don't like that idea that every single issue that currently goes on, we immediately look back to slavery. But if you want to learn the history of anything, if you want to learn where things come from, you have to go all the way back to 1619. You have to go back to that, to that, uh, to, to the enslavement of black people, because that does, that did a lot to us. Um, in terms of, again, economics, political uh, economics, the family structure, everything. It did a lot to Black people. It put a lot of trauma on, on Black people as a whole. First, it connected people who were not a race and turned them into a race. And then it put trauma on them collectively and created a collective experience um, of trauma, of pain, of suffering, and of perseverance. Um, but again, to talk about Black history without talking about slavery and then its subsequent Jim Crow, I think it's kind of crazy to even suggest that you can do that. Well, you know, what I thought about is that that's how they've been teaching history all this time. Oh, yeah. They talk about all their good things that they think is good. And then they leave out all the things that really happened um, so that they're more comfortable with this one picture of history. Um, And so they're basically asking, can we do what they've been doing already? And why should we? Why You did this. And why should we not state that? You know, why should we not talk about that? Well, I will tell you this. So for one year, you're correct. When I was coming up in school in Virginia, uh, went to elementary, middle, high, and even the first six years of college in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, I had to learn uh, American history through that lens, through let's talk about the good stuff America did. Let's talk about the wars that we won. Let's talk about the presidents who were important. Um, Black history was relegated to the margins of that story. If you would have read the textbooks that I read growing up and you would have taken the history classes that I had growing up, Black people weren't here (laughs) at all. We were not here. Uh, Or if we were, well, excuse me, we were here uh, when Frederick Douglass showed up randomly. Um, And then what was it? Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X held a gun. That was pretty much it. Like that was always the picture of him holding a gun, and and, and and that was that was black people in America, and that was a majority of what I learned growing up. And when I got to college, I had to totally relearn history. Um, I had to totally relearn one how to understand it from a black experience, because to my knowledge, black people had no significant roles in American history or history period. And so when you say white people are learning their history from, you know, the fluffed up story of how great we are as a country, uh, think about that black kids, forget white kids in this, black kids aren't even learning their history. At least white kids are getting their history every day. Uh, every year they're getting their history. They know their history too. They, they know it. And I think we don't even get it. it, It's it's shameful because, um, you know, I go to Jamaica a lot. I take students with me to Jamaica. Uh That I love about Jamaica is that they know their history. Like culturally, we can have these dynamic conversations about their culture, their history, their people, where they came from, Mm -hmm. all these different things. You know, they even know our history to, you know, knowing a little bit about slavery and and slave ships. And I admired that so much because they have a pride in their culture and their heritage, even though there there was some colonialization and and some slavery that happened there. They are such prideful people. 
Mm-hmm. And then you come back here and I'm like, I've never witnessed that. My first, I, I've never witnessed that in that way until I went to Jamaica because we don't have that. We don't have that historical foundation. My books, when I picture, I can picture what my books look like. And it was always all white people, especially when we start talking about civil, civil war. Black people was there? What? Where Where were they? Because it was all white people fighting. Everyone in the book was white males and what white males were doing. And we did not get an understanding of where black people were. We just, just we know we were brought over here on the ship. We know that part. But we don't have the true history um, mm-hmm. to be able to tell our cultural story and pass it down to our children in the ways that other cultures have where they are, you know, the majority, everyone in that culture looks like them. Well, no, you're, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but but, but, but no, you're hundred percent right. Uh, because, uh, I was actually having this conversation with a white friend of mine a a while ago and it was about the issue of, of black history. So he asked the question, he's like, you know, how come more black students or more black kids don't know black history? And, um, you know, I had to tell him, I said, well, think about it. I said, how many white parents are every, at every single day, are talking about history to their kids. Very few of none, because they have a public school system and or a private school system that does it for them. And, and I said, the reason why black kids don't, lo- don't love black history, for one, because they've been taught that black people have been slaves. And then from slaves, they've been, they've been oppressed their entire lives. And number two, it's not taught to them in any palatable way. And so I was like, the reason why, to answer your question, you know, why don't we have that cultural pride in our history in America? Because for a long time, our history was denied to us. Black scholars were not even allowed to publish until the night. I mean, we're talking mainstream university presses. They were not allowed to publish until what, the 1960s? And we're talking late 1960s after the civil rights, the traditional civil rights movement and then the black power movement. Before that, black scholars were pushed to the margins of history. Um, they could publish only in small pub- small publishers would take their work in, but it would not be accepted by the academy. It wouldn't be put into textbooks. It would not be taught in elementary, middle, and high school. You had some black schools that would teach black history, but even then, those black schools were heavily underfunded. They couldn't afford the books that cost a lot of money because the black black uh, scholars had to go to these small presses who didn't have as many resources. I mean, just... Yeah, like we don't like we we have systematized black history being irrelevant in this country yeah. for a very long time. And so going back to when you said the, uh, that newspaper article that you read where the comments were, you know, why are we got to learn black history, yada, yada. I mean, that that is just it's pure ignorance at that point to even question why we need to learn black history. For a long time, this country has said, forget black history. That is what they've said. And so now we've come to the moment to where there is at least a feeling that we should investigate it. Let's do it. Uh, let's investigate it. But again, people are afraid because once you do that, you have to acknowledge discrimination and racism. And then you have to change and people don't want to do that. They don't want to change. Wow. This is such a great discussion. And I hope my hope for this discussion is that our listeners get some understanding of our history and want to go out and learn more and, and gain more insight and, and read, you know, the 1619 Project, because it really, you know, begins with all these different essays and right. you can start to dig into different pieces on your own after that point. But it's a good starting point to get a real understanding of, of, our, of our history, right? right. And, and where we're going. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to say you are an up and coming scholar. And so if, you know, our listeners wanted to learn more about some of the work that you're doing. Where can they find you? Or uh, 
Uh, so they could find, well, they can find my work uh, in the Journal of African American History, which I recently had an article published there. Um, also, I have a piece coming out in the Indiana University Press on uh, Black education during the 1980s. Uh, so that is coming out. And also, they can find me or on the ODU website, uh, although it is poorly updated. Uh, and that is not, not no, 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 no shade being thrown at, at Old Dominion, but they make it very hard to update the website. But uh, to, my, to, to the best of my abilities, I try to put as much of the current work that I'm doing on there. So people can find me, my, my contact is all there, it's all accurate. So just the ODU website. And as far as the, um, as far as the investigating black history. So I use the 1619 project, especially in my African-American history classes. That is the first reading they get. Okay. And, we, and we spend a week on it. And the reason why we spend a week on it is because I've, I found that a lot of black students didn't even know, like you said, they didn't even know the project existed. And it, this highly controversial project that even our president is trying to get rid of, or at least trying to, to root out rather. Um, they had never heard about it. And so I said, I want us to spend an entire week reading it. And so we do. And from that, every single thing we learn in the class, at least whether it's pre-1865 or, pre or post-1865, it's plastered up against the 1619 project. And so I tell them the reason why we do this is because this the 1619 project is the way that the average Black person will get Black history. They're not going to buy a book. They're not going to log on to JSTOR and look at scholarly articles. They're going to look at, they're going to go to the internet and the 1619 Project is going to be the first thing that comes up. I said, that's that's our history. And so there are some things, and there are a lot of things I love about the project. There are some things I'm like, uh, that could have been done better. Uh, but at the same time, that's a start. That's something to get you interested. And so that's why I give that to my students up front to get them interested. And so for, for everyone else, you know, general consumers, I say go to YouTube, go to Vimeo, go to any sort of uh, streaming uh, uh, streaming site and just Google Black history, Google Reconstruction, Black Reconstruction, Google Jim Crow, Google the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the Eyes on the Prize series, all of it, the original one anyway, is all online now. It's completely free. Um, so do that. And from there, that's when you go and say, OK, well, I want to learn more about this person. I want to learn more about this period. I want to know more about, you know, Negro League Baseball or I want to learn more about Black women after slavery. I want to learn more about whatever. And then you and then. Uh, Amazon has a, has a huge selection of books. You, from there, you can go buy books or you can even acquire articles that way. And so I think that's the best way to do it because we're not a reading society. Reading is a dying art. Um, but videos and uh, videos and movies, a lot of people like movies, but I say, go, I say go more with documentaries done by professional historians. And then from there, go into finding the books that interest you. Uh, that's, that's my advice. No, thank you. Thank you for that, because I think you're right. We want them to be able to get the information the best way that works for them, especially the listeners to this podcast, because I think we, we I named it Making It Plain because I want it to be just plain and simple for them to grasp and, and go out. So thank you for that, that journey and those tips. Yes. I want to thank everyone for listening to Making It Plain today. Um, I want to close out with a quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones, 1619 Project. It was the very uh, final sentence that she included in a, pro in a project. And I thought it was, it was, it, it's befitting to close out today. Right. And it says, we were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be American, but yeah. it was by virtue of our bondage that we became most American of all. Amen. I, and I just I think it's just a powerful, 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 powerful um, closing. 
So I will say this is making it plain with Dr. Keith. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Charles, for your brilliance and for sharing this with us with us today. To all my followers, please follow us on Instagram at making it plain with Dr. Keith or visit our website, thedrkeith.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com.